0: I want you to open your Bibles with me to John chapter 10. John 10 is where we'll be this morning. We'll be specifically um, zooming in on verses 24 through 30, in which Jesus is describing himself and portraying himself as the Good Shepherd. And uh, hence I've entitled this sermon, The Perfect Shepherd. Um, because many times we can put a connotation on that word good that's may kind of fall short of what Christ truly is. He is the perfect shepherd. He's the only good shepherd. As a opening illustration, I'm going to give you a little history here, a little bit of ancient history regarding shepherds in ancient times. And it's quite interesting when I had first heard about this, but... The way this would happen is ancient shepherds, when they would enter into a town or they would look to get lodging for the night, uh, perhaps they're conducting some business or traveling from point A to point B, whatever the case may be, the shepherds would then deposit their flock into a community pen of sorts. And in, in this community pen, there would be multiple flocks from multiple shepherds within this enclosure of sorts there. And so they would be intermixed. There would be sheep from Shepherd A, Shepherd B, and Shepherd C. And they would just all be there in one fence together. And you might say, well, that seems kind of silly and kind of odd, isn't it? You'd think they would maybe separate them out. Like, where's my parking space for my sheep, right? But uh, this wasn't the case. It wasn't necessary. Multiple flocks were all intermixed. However, the sheep would only lift their heads and respond To the call and the voice of their own shepherd. Which is pretty amazing when you think about it. Considering that sheeps are not the smartest animals on the planet. Um, But it's quite amazing. They would lift their heads. They'd respond to the voice of their shepherd. They do not respect. They do not respond. The voice of a shepherd they do not know. They simply will not do it. And I think you'll find that. Interesting as we work through this text and looking at Christ as the good shepherd the perfect shepherd So this is what we're studying that Jesus is the good shepherd He is a perfect and mighty savior that never loses even one of his sheep He cannot fail to save any of his people if he could lose any then well he would no longer be a good shepherd would he? You may look at a a shepherd, perhaps, who, say, he had a flock of about a thousand sheep under him. And if he lost about 30 of them throughout the year, you may say, well, you had a pretty good year. That's pretty good. Only 30 out of a thousand. But Jesus said he loses none, not even one. And hence he is the only true good shepherd. Amen. So as we dig into this passage, we'll uncover And unpack three things regarding Christ the Good Shepherd. Number one is that the Good Shepherd knows his flock. He knows them. This speaks to the doctrine that we call the sovereign foreknowledge of God. The foreknowledge of God in knowing all of his people and calling them to himself. And then number two, that the Good Shepherd calls his flock. He calls them. And this will speak to the doctrine of effectual calling as well, there's a lot of beauty in this passage. I hope you'll see. And then number three, that the good shepherd keeps his flock. He keeps them, and this speaks to the the beautiful doctrine of our assurance, and that being the preservation or the perseverance of the saints, as we call it. So, would you uh, stand with me, please, and we'll dig into this passage together. In John chapter 10, starting in verse 24. And through 30. So the Jews gathered around him, Jesus, and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you. But you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness about me. But you do not believe because... You are not among my sheep. You are not of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are... One. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we thank you and love you so much. We thank you for your word that it is it is powerful. It is a two-edged sword cutting between bone and marrow, Lord, cutting into the hearts of men, convicting us of sin and righteousness. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the beauty that is found therein where we find your character and the power of your sovereignty, Lord, that you lose not one of your sheep, that you will save your people. Or give us that assurance. Edify God's people today. Edify your people. In Jesus' name, Amen. A little textual history and context is always helpful, I believe. In studying these things, Jesus has been teaching throughout the book of John, if you're familiar with it, to various crowds of Jews and Gentiles, some believing, some not, but mostly Jews. And he fed 5,000 in John chapter 6. You recall that story. And then he made the point that many of those who were following him around were not doing so because of the signs or because they believed in who he said he was but rather because Jesus says they ate their fill of bread. They were following him for the wrong reasons, weren't they? And he continues to speak about himself in no uncertain terms, right? He uses many I am statements throughout this book of John, such as I am the good shepherd that we see here in this chapter. This is one of several I am statements listed throughout. He calls himself the bread of life. He says, that the work of God is to believe in the one whom he has sent. And he says that all people that the Father gives to him will come to him. He's very sure in these statements he makes. They're quite permanent, these statements he makes. And he says that he is the true bread which has come down from heaven. He makes it clear that no one can come to him unless the Father who sent him draws them And also says that all of those who believe in the Son will have eternal life. They have it, present tense, in John chapter 5. And he says he will raise them up on the last day, John 6. And in chapter 8, he says, I am the light of the world. More I am statements, right? And furthermore, he says in chapter 8, before Abraham was, I am. At which point they picked up stones to stone him. Because they knew exactly what he was saying. They cried, blasphemy. How dare you, a man, make yourself equal with God? And the Jews listening to him, how dare you? He's claiming to be God, but it was so clear. He says, I am, ego, I, me, in the Greek. It's the same exact wording used of Yahweh God in the Old Testament. I am who I am. And the Jews listening to him through all of these encounters are... Of course, confused, many of them. His meaning is hidden from them, isn't it? And we're, in fact, even told that many of them, their understanding is veiled by God. That he's veiled them as a judgment against them for their unbelief, for their rejection of the Messiah. And even the disciples, after calling himself the bread of life and making these really profound statements, they said, Jesus, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? How can you say these things? And of course, John makes the point that Jesus knows exactly who will come to him and who will not. And once again reminds them in John 6 and 8 that no one can believe in him unless it is granted them by the Father. The sovereignty of God over the affairs of men and over salvation. And after Jesus made that particular statement that No one can believe in him unless it is granted to them by the Father. We're told that many of the disciples from the crowd stopped following him. They walked away. Well, that was just too offensive. Imagine if he would have said that in our day. I mean, people would be offended and go home crying. And then, of course, in the following chapters, Jesus continues to teach in the open in the local temples while the Jews and especially the Pharisees, they grumble about him and they mutter and they complain. And they quickly began planning, of course, to arrest and eventually kill him. So then we come to our text here in John chapter 10 where Jesus once again makes an I am statement when he says, I am the good shepherd. And we see his claim to divinity here, the claim that he is God in the flesh, standing right before them. And so Jesus Christ, he is the good and perfect shepherd. Number one, that the good shepherd knows his flock. He knows them. So Jesus, before he continues expounding on his role as the good shepherd here in chapter 10, he addresses the crowd's. Distress in verse 24 and 25. So the Jews gathered around him. They said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? <laughs> if you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, but you don't believe. He addresses their suspense, their distress. The Jews claim to be in, in suspense, so they have been uh, listening to Jesus for quite a while, yes. They've been hearing what he's saying, what he's preaching. And they said, how long? How long will you keep us in suspense? See, the Jews, they wanted a Messiah to plainly reveal himself. They had their own ideas of what the Messiah should be. They wanted a political leader of sorts. They wanted someone that would free them from the oppression of the Roman government. Perhaps even overthrow the Roman government. That's what they were looking for. They weren't looking for the, the servant Messiah that would kneel down and wash his disciples' feet. They weren't looking for one who is a shepherd. They weren't looking for him. And Jesus replies in verse 25, he says, I told you, (laughs) confirming, of course, that he has explained to them, he really has, many times who he is, but they do not believe. And in the point that he makes here, we see that this is where I draw my point, that the Messiah knows his sheep, the fact that they said, tell us plainly, would at first glance seem to indicate that Jesus had been masking or, or hiding who he is. Maybe he's, he's purposely trying to mask it in such a way where they can't understand that he was the Christ. Maybe he's trying to confuse them on purpose. But this is not the case. Jesus had been abundantly clear, hadn't he? Abundantly clear. Otherwise, they would not have attempted to stone him in John chapter 8, two chapters earlier, right? Many of them perfectly understood that he was claiming to be God. Otherwise, why did they get so offended? However, many of them still did not believe. Why? Well, because their hearts were hardened. We're told as much in chapter 8. In various chapters throughout John. God had not opened their eyes. He says they were not of his sheep. We see a cause and effect here. Don't we? The good shepherd knows his sheep. This is made clear in John chapter 6 as well. When Jesus explains in great detail. That no one can or is able to come to him. Unless the father draws them the Greek wording there is one of my favorite Greek words. My wife can always tell you that. The, he says not able or no ability. The Greek is "o, dunatai. It's fun to say. And my kids will run around the house saying Ooh dunatai. It's fun. But, but they're not able. He speaks of the lack of ability to come to him, to obey him. Why? Their hearts are hardened. Their spirits are darkened. It takes a gracious act of God to open their eyes. To so open their ears to understand. This speaks of ability. You, all of you have experienced this, I'm sure, sometime in your elementary school education, that, that the teacher that may ask, or that you may ask the teacher, excuse me, can I go to the bathroom? Right? And she says, Well, I don't know, can you? Right? And she's doing that on purpose. The word can speaks of ability. Right? But the word may is being used in permission. But Jesus addresses their ability. No one can or is able to come to me. So we see the same amazing principle demonstrated here in John chapter 10, 24 and 25, that unless one is drawn to God, one will never believe. This speaks of a, this word for draw, it speaks of a drawing of a bucket of water out of a well, pulling, a dragging, if you will. We see this same word used of Paul and Silas or Paul and Barnabas when they were dragged out of the temple in the book of Acts because people were once again offended at what they said. It's the same word. To be drawn, to be dragged. It's a powerful, effectual drawing. It's a powerful work of God in the heart of the sinner. You see? But people may ask, well, won't, won't people believe because of great miracles? Wouldn't they believe because of powerful works that Jesus has done? Jesus mentions his works here in this passage, many powerful works that he's done. And you may hear that from people nowadays. That I just need a sign. Right? I just need something. Show me a sign. Show me a miracle. And then I'll believe. No, you won't. No, you won't. That's not what the text says says. That's not true. Jesus had done many works. Verse 25. And yet many still did not believe. Says something amazing. This is a good point that performing works and or miracles of any kind does not guarantee that people will believe. It must be an act of grace from God. God the Holy Spirit upon the heart of the sinner. It must happen. The veil must be lifted. Amen? And we see in verse 26 that Jesus explains the roots of their unbelief. He roots it in the fact that they are what? Not of his sheep. They are not of his flock. Well, how can Jesus say this? Well, because the good shepherd knows his sheep. He knows them because he already knows who is and who is not a part of his flock. Otherwise, he could not say this, could he? Jesus tells us plainly that the cause of unbelief is not simply an act of their will. The cause ultimately is that they are not of God. They are not of his sheep. This is the same thing, the very devastating and offensive thing that Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 47, when he asked the rhetorical question, as he often does, why can you not hear me? Why can you not hear the words that I'm saying to you? And he answers his own question. It's because you're not of God. You don't belong to God. You're of your father, the devil. Now, we're not saying, of course, that the, the will of a person is completely omitted in coming to True belief and true faith. But the will of a person towards God by nature is hostile towards God, isn't it? That's what we see in Ephesians 2, Romans 3, Romans 8. Romans, specifically verse 7 in Romans 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile towards God. It does not submit itself to the law of God or the will of God. Indeed, it cannot. It is not even able to do so. U Once again. They will never come to God. They will never desire God apart from Him. What? Changing their will. Changing their heart and their disposition towards Him first. Amen? Do you remember when God did that for you? When He powerfully drew and called you to Himself by the power of His gospel. That's why the gospel is called the power of God unto salvation. It's the means by which he draws his people to himself. Do you remember when God did that for you? Did you deserve that? Of course not. So that leads us to our next question and point. Well, how does one become a sheep? How is one made a member of the flock? Well, that's number two. The good shepherd calls them. He calls his flock. This again speaks to effectual calling. Verse 26 and 27. We can ask the question regarding being a member of the flock, being a sheep. Is this something that we can earn? Is it something that we can merit? Or is it perhaps something that we just stumble upon by accident? Surely not, right? Jesus gives three statements here, three indicatives here regarding the sheep. That Number one, he says, my sheep, they hear my voice. They hear his voice. Number two, he knows them. And number three, they follow him. They hear his voice. He knows them and they follow him. So verse 27, it makes clear that if you are of God's sheep, then you will at some point during your life, hear His calling, right? Do you remember when that happened for you? You heard His calling, not in some crazy, you know, audible voice out in the middle of the woods like Joseph Smith of Mormonism or anything like that necessarily, but through the call of the gospel. At one point during your life, through the preaching and the teaching of God's Word, the power of His Word went out through, the, through God the Holy Spirit, and He pulled on your heart, and He opened your eyes to see the beauty and the loveliness of Christ, and the fact that you needed Him. You needed a Savior. And I guarantee that in that moment, there was someone that was being faithful to the Word of God, and they were preaching the Gospel. That's what God uses. To call His sheep to Himself. He's ordained that the preaching and the proclamation of the gospel would be the means through which he will call you to himself. And let's notice that Jesus is actually repeating himself here, isn't he? He's actually already stated this same teaching earlier in the chapter in verse 14 and 16 above. Chapter 10, verse 14, he says, I am the good shepherd. There it is again. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay my life down for the sheep. 16, and I, have no, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them in also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. He states who he is, that he knows them. And that they know Him. In verse 16, He once again makes the clear statement, as He has before, that salvation is not only for one people group. It's not just for one ethnicity or anything like that. He's referencing the Gentiles, of course, whom He will bring in also. All of them. That He calls to Himself. He will bring them in. And they will listen to His voice. They will this Greek word, gnosko. This this is my favorite Greek word by far. It means to know, to know. But it's it's a much deeper meaning than what we would have in English. It doesn't just speak of knowing a person. Oh, I know him. Yeah, we worked together once, or I I know her. We worked on this project, or I know of him. You know, we we would be quite informal about it. But this word has much deeper deeper meaning and awesome implications. Very significant, this word ginosko. It means to know, but it's used throughout Scripture to speak of intimately knowing of a person or intimately choosing of someone. It's used that way as well. It's an intimate, deep knowing of a person, a choosing to enter into an intimate relationship with that person. And this is the word used many times in God speaking of his people, that he knows them. It's very, very deep meaning. The Hebrew word is, is yada, which carries the same connotation as the word ginosko. It speaks of a closeness, of a loving knowing of a person, of a people. It is, in fact, used, it's the word used to speak of Adam when he knew Eve, right? When he knew his wife. And in that, they conceived a child. And we see it's used in the book of Amos as well, when God spoke of his people and he said, you among all the nations have I chosen, have I known. Gnosko, it's the same word, to know, to choose. So you can see what I'm trying to, Paint here for you is the picture of Jesus using this same word regarding his sheep. You can see the amazing significance here when Jesus says regarding his sheep that he knows them. He calls them to himself. So not only does Christ know and call his sheep, he says that they will follow him. They'll listen to him. Right? He loses not one. We have to recognize the permanence of. Of these statements of Christ This is our peace This is our assurance That I'm trying to encourage you with Okay He does not say Some sheep will follow me But others may follow me He doesn't say that Or I will keep as many as I can But some may not follow me forever I'll try my best He doesn't say that Does he? No This is Clearly a natural God-ordained progression of events. Listen closely. The sheep know their shepherd because he knows them first. And he has called them. He calls his sheep. They listen to him and they will follow him. Permanence. Eternal. Do you see? This is our assurance. I hope you see that. The true believer's Follow Christ. They listen to Christ. They demonstrate the renewal of life, right? We talk about fruits that a Christian produces, the evidence of their lives, the new direction and the commitment in their lives towards him. This is the fruits of a true believer. They will follow him. And note in Matthew chapter 25 verses 31 through 46 where Jesus is describing the Son of Man once again as a shepherd. And pay attention to this. He is separating, he says, the sheep from the goats. Right? And it says he is ushering the sheep into eternal life and sending the goats away into eternal punishment. And listen, you must get this. And what is the wording of Christ to those goats? Many of whom pretended or presumed, perhaps, to be part of his flock because of their works or their merits or their own righteousness or whatever. What are his words of great judgment on the white throne judgment seat? Depart from me. I never, what? Knew you. What word would you guess is used there? Gnosko. It's the same word. I never knew you. You see, it is God (laughs) that grants eternal life to His sheep. Those who hear His voice, not because of anything in you, not because of anything in me, and not because they chose Him out of their own smarts and wisdom because you were just so wise, right? Not because of anything in me. Because He chose them. He called them. Have you forgotten when God did that for you? Did you deserve that? Of course not. What a beautiful testament to the sovereign grace of God. Upon unworthy sinners who did not want Him. Who were hostile towards Him. And when he grants eternal life, it is truly eternal and secure. Okay? It's not temporary. If he had granted eternal life, air quotes, to someone, and then it could be lost by you or some other failure, then guess what? It never was eternal, was it? That would be a contradiction. No, Jesus said in John chapter 5, again, He who believes, he who is in me, Has eternal life he has it present tense he has it he says they have passed from darkness into light but you may say well look Zach but there are those who have claimed to have once been a believer they say I used to be a Christian but no longer what about them well that was not eternal life was it It wasn't. If you claimed to be a believer for, say, ten years, and then you fell away and apostatized completely, never to return ever again, well, then you didn't have eternal life. You had ten-year life. (laughs) They were never truly called, were they? 1 John 2.19 says they went out from us so that it may be made shown that they were never of us. They were never of us. I love these these couple quotes from Steve Lawson. He's a great, great preacher that I like to follow. He says, Look, you're either in the kingdom or you're out of the kingdom. <laughs> there are no fence sitters in the kingdom of God. And he says, Listen, what has been settled in eternity cannot be undone in time. Amen. You can't unsave yourself. Which leads us to our final point. That the good shepherd keeps his flock. He keeps them. This is our great assurance. Starting in verse 28. So not only does Jesus know his sheep. And likewise calls his sheep. He keeps them. He preserves them. They persevere. Jesus again makes... Three divine statements here. He says, I give them eternal life, they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one. Again, this is, like I was just saying, truly eternal life, okay? Not somewhat eternal, not kind of eternal, not 10 years until someone falls away forever. No, eternal life. The word for eternal is used 17 times, at least, in the book of John. And it is always used in connection with the word life. Every single time. Isn't that good? Jesus keeps his flock. He has them in his grip, safe and secure. That's why we sing that old hymn, right? And this is consistent. This is the this is consistent teaching throughout all of Scripture. We have to recognize this, that Scripture supports and interprets Scripture. Peter agrees in 1 Peter chapter 1 when he assures believers of the same thing as John. Three things that are true of every person in Christ. Number one, they were chosen by the Father, Peter says. They were sprinkled or covered by the blood of Christ. And three, they are... Kept. Isn't that good? They are sanctified, he says. They are made holy by the Holy Spirit. And then Peter goes on and makes the point that we are guarded. We're guarded and kept by God who gives us the faith, he says, that we need to continue to persevere throughout life. He helps us. Aren't you happy that God doesn't just leave it up to you to figure it out? <laughs> He helps you through it. He guides you. He guards you. So Peter perfectly aligns with John. What a novel idea. That Scripture supports Scripture. Alone you would fail. I would fail. Praise God you don't do it alone. It's not left on you to just figure it out. Verse 28. The clearest statement Regarding our assurance, I think one of the most clear in all of Scripture, no one and no thing can snatch you out of his hand. No one can snatch his true sheep from his hand. So our perseverance is ultimately dependent upon and carried along by God's grace. Praise God that he holds on to us, that he holds on to you. In verse 29, Jesus goes on further and he makes clear the doctrine that the true sheep are actually a gift from the Father to the Son. Isn't that beautiful? See, what we're seeing here is, I'm not going to plumb the depths of the Trinity today here, okay? But a beautiful look, a glimpse into the inter-Trinitarian love. Of God in eternity past that God in eternity past ordained that in his amazing grace he chose to bestow his grace upon many 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 people who did not deserve it <laughs> who did not want him the father gives this grace to a people he gives these people to the son as an inheritance his church and In time, during our lives, the Holy Spirit convicts and he draws and he calls those people at some point during their lives through the gracious proclamation of his gospel. You see, the entire Trinity is involved in your salvation. Isn't that amazing? It's an awesome truth. And Jesus, furthermore, says that his father is greater than all. There in verse 29. Greater than all. This reminds us, or it should remind us anyway, of when the Jews asked him in chapter 8, Are you greater than our father Abraham? Who do you think you are, Jesus? Are you greater? To which Jesus responded that his father, God the Father, of whom they say he is our God. That's my father, Jesus says. And he followed that up with, Before Abraham was, I am. I am. Like we already said, at which point they picked up stones to stone him because <laughs> they knew exactly what he was saying. This is a claim to divinity. Blasphemy, they cried. And so, not only can the, the true sheep of God not be snatched out of the hand of Christ, but he goes on furthermore and he says, they cannot be snatched out of the Father's hand. Isn't this an awesome picture that he's painting for us, right? It's as if the people of God are held safe and secure in the hand of Christ. And then the mighty hand of the father has them in his hand as well. For some sort of double security, if you will. What an amazing picture that is. You can't be snatched out of my hand, Jesus says, and you can't be snatched out of the father's hand. What can break the grip of God? You? Me? Certainly not. Amen? (laughs) Praise God that we can't break His grip. And then, finishing off in verse 30, He boldly says that I and the Father are one. What does this mean? Well, one in purpose. One in mind. Right? One in bringing about their plan of salvation for all of his people, all of his sheep. They are one. Then in verse 31, right after, what happens again? They pick up stones to stone him. (laughs) Claiming divinity with God the Father. How dare you? Why? Well, once again, they understand what he's saying. They understand that he's claiming deity, don't they? Otherwise, why are they so offended? Because you, being a man, make yourself equal with God. See just as a no, we have to recognize this goes against every false claim from every false religion on the planet. Where people will say, "Well, Jesus, he never claimed to be God." Oh, yes, he most certainly did. <laughs> I thought I hope we've established that here today. He most certainly did. You cannot read through the book of John without getting the clear message That Jesus is God, unless you are blinded or purposely denying it. That He is God. This dismantles false systems such as Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses and Islam and others. This is our assurance that the Lord keeps His sheep, He has them in His hand. And the Lord gives His sheep the endless life of eternal fellowship with God. What is the chief end of man, right? The old catechism question. To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Amen. He protects them from perishing according to His divine grace. And He allows no one to snatch them out of His hand. You see, the saints persevere because God preserves them. Remember, you're not doing it alone. It's a perseverance, it's grounded in the electing purposes of God, in the justifying grace of God, and in the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in your life, in your heart. Can you thwart that? No. And praise God, you can't. (laughs) No one can thwart the purposes of God. The true sheep are not even able to snatch themselves out of God's hand. When he says, no one can snatch them out of my hand, are you a part of no one? Yes, you are. No one, not even yourself, can snatch yourself out of his hand. Our assurance is rooted in him, not in ourselves. Isn't that good? We are divinely kept by God, he keeps his sheep, he gives us grace and peace where we need it, where we need it. He continues to grow us in holiness throughout our life, purging us of sin, right? Correcting us where we need it. He disciplines those who he loves, right? Throughout our life, he's causing us to hate our sin and likewise causing us to desire to please him. All of these things are evidences that we belong to God. Amen? Are you producing these fruits? Do you belong to him? And so in, in closing here, this should be our great assurance that we find in this passage. And I hope you've seen that today. The scripture is abundantly clear. <laughs> Can one of God's people truly and ultimately fall away from him? No. <laughs> Jesus His sheep, they hear His voice. And they come to Him, and He keeps them. He has them in His hand. What a beautiful truth that is. I love this this quote from Alistair Begg. He's a great pastor as well. He says, Praise God that our continuance into eternal life depends not upon our feeble hold of Him, but upon His majestic and mighty hold of us. Isn't that good? When you take a tiny child across the street and you're grabbing a hold of their hand, you may sometimes let them hold on to your your finger or something, right, if they have a small hand. But you may quickly decide if there's a lot of traffic around that that's maybe not the safest way (laughs) to transport them. Right? And so you may firmly clasp their tiny hand inside your hand. Or if you want to be double secure, you may even grab their whole wrist, right? And hold them tightly as you cross the street together in order to protect them. Well why? Why do you do that? Well, because you don't want their safety dependent upon their childish, feeblish grasp upon you, right? You want their safety dependent upon your firm grasp upon them. And such is the beauty of the Christian life, right? And our dependence upon God who has mercy upon those who are His and He holds on to us. He does. I'll close with this wonderful illustration from Charles Spurgeon, or story rather. Spurgeon had, he had expressed great apprehension When he first considered giving his life to Christ and uh, had heard the teachings of Christianity here and there. But he was a little apprehensive. Why? Because he had seen others fall away. He had seen hypocrites. And he's like, I don't want to be like that. I don't want to be another hypocrite. But then it was preached to Spurgeon at some point that the perseverance of the saints rests upon God and not upon himself. And that God carries the believer on through their life, never letting go. And so Spurgeon said, this was the bait that my soul could not resist. I couldn't resist it. When he heard the gospel proclaimed to him as a teenager and his eyes were opened to the truth that his salvation did not depend on his imperfect hold upon God, but rather depended upon God's hold upon him. He said, that was the bait I couldn't resist. Are you of his flock? Do you belong to him today? Do you truly trust in Christ alone and his finished work upon the cross, the shedding of his blood, justification, declaring you righteous and free from all your sin? Do you trust alone? In Christ, has he convicted you of sin and drawn you to himself, to your knees in repentance? Has that happened to you? Praise God if it has. I pray that, that that's true of all of us here. And if not, I pray that the Lord would empower his word today and use the truth of his gospel to powerfully call out to you today. And to draw you to himself and that you would bow the knee to him today. Scripture says today is the day of salvation. Christ accomplished it. Cry out to the good shepherd. He is good. Scripture says that those who truly proclaim with their mouth and believe in their heart that's the most important part and believe in their heart that Jesus is Lord, they will be saved. Are you a part of his flock? Are you of his sheep? And if you do have the assurance and you you bear the fruit that demonstrates you belong to God, then praise God. Take heart, my fellow believer. Those are the fruits and evidence that you belong to Him. That He has you in His hand and you can never sin yourself out of eternal salvation. You are a great sinner. I am a great sinner. (laughs) But He's a greater Savior. He is a greater shepherd who keeps his sheep and they will never be snatched out of his hand. Not one. Amen. Praise God for that. Let's pray. Oh, gracious Father, our Lord in heaven, we thank you that our salvation, our perseverance, our preservation in you, Lord God, depends not upon us and our feeble sinful grasp upon you, but rather your mighty hold upon us. We pray that that would be true of all of us today, Lord, that you would edify your people through your word today, that you would remind us that our salvation is truly secure in your son, Jesus Christ, that he accomplished salvation on that cross, that he is the good shepherd And he will lose not one of his sheep, Lord. And I pray that if that is not true of anyone here today, that you would grant them faith and repentance, that you would open their eyes to the truth, Lord, and that you would draw them to yourself powerfully, Lord. We are so thankful that you are a mighty Savior. Let us trust in Christ alone for our salvation.